Ecclesiastes chapter one, we're gonna be in verses one through 11. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and grab a seat. So we're gonna be spending the next three-ish months in Ecclesiastes. And again, I'm so excited for it. Today's sermon is titled, The Locksmith and the Key. And so each time we jump into a new book here at Story Church, here's what we like to do. We, we like to, for the first Sunday, we like to just kind of pan out and do an introduction to the book and an overview of the book. And so what we're gonna do today is we're gonna spend the first half of the day just kind of looking at Ecclesiastes from a big picture, from a historical standpoint. And then for the second half of the sermon, we're going to step into some of the verses and what it's teaching us. So look back up to the top, Ecclesiastes 1, verses 1 and 2. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. All right, so stop right there. As an introduction, I wanna answer for us some questions. I asked the questions that you're probably asking right now, and I wanna answer them so we can understand Ecclesiastes for the next few months. So, so the first question I have for us is, what does Ecclesiastes mean? What does Ecclesiastes mean? So the word Ecclesiastes is just a Greek translation of a Hebrew word, kohelet. Uh, and that word simply is meant to bring about imagery of a preacher or a teacher standing in front of an assembly of people and giving a sermon or giving a lecture. We get our New Testament word, ecclesia, from the word ecclesiastes. And ecclesia in the New Testament simply means assembly or gathering or church, which is why my job is called a preacher, because I stand before a congregation that is assembled together and I preach the word of God. So Ecclesiastes is simply a 12-chapter recorded sermon for the people of God. That's what Ecclesiastes means. Second question, who wrote the book? Who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes? Now, just right out of the gates, there are no major conclusions from differing scholars on who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. Some say it is written by Solomon. Others say it was written at a later date and couldn't have been written by Solomon. So right here in verse one, it says it's written by the son of David. What we know, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem is Solomon. However, later in the book, there's a couple of statements that are made that I was greater than all the kings 
kings that came before me. Well, there were not multiple kings that came before Solomon. So rather than just kind of take a stance one way or the other, there's only one real conclusion that we can come to about who wrote this book. And this is the conclusion that scholars can agree upon. This book is either written by Solomon or it's written about Solomon. Okay, it's either by the hand of Solomon or it's written as a reflection upon the life and the kingship and the leadership and the history of Solomon himself. That is to say, regardless of where you stand on who wrote it, Solomon is the central character in the book of Ecclesiastes, which leads to our third question. Who was Solomon? This is a very important question to understanding the book of Ecclesiastes. So Solomon, as I already said, was the second king of Israel. He succeeded his father, David, as the ruler over Israel, the great and the honorable King David. However, Solomon's origin stories are not that pretty. It's a messy origin story, which is good news for you and I, because all of us come from pretty messy stories and pretty messy family histories. Am I right? David, though he was a great king, an honorable king, he was a flawed and a sinful man. And we see this on display throughout the whole of the Old Testament. And, and Solomon, he was born in a situation that, that we just, we would not love, all right? So one day, Israel was out fighting battles. David should have been in the battle with Israel, commanding the army. However, he stayed back in his home. And while he stayed back in his home, he went out on his rooftop, which looked down over all of Jerusalem. And at this moment, David saw a woman, Bathsheba, on her rooftop bathing. And he saw her and was enticed by her. And so he used his kingly powers to summon her to himself. And when he did that, he brought her into his home and, and he had an adulterous affair with Bathsheba. She was married to one of the soldiers on the front lines. His name was Uriah. Well, Bathsheba became pregnant with David's kid. And again, this is in, in an adulterous affair. And so David, wanting to save face, he had Uriah murdered. So he had Uriah murdered. Therefore, Bathsheba was now single and needed a husband. And David, looking like the honorable man, was like, oh, I'll just, I'll take that place. You know, it'll, it'll be me. Again, he's trying to save face here. While Israel may not have seen the sin, God saw the sin and God punished King David. And that child conceived in the affair uh, actually ended up dying. But David and Bathsheba stayed married and God was exceedingly gracious and merciful to them as he always is. And they conceived a second child and that child was Solomon. So Solomon is the second child of David and Bathsheba. And now as David is getting older and he's nearing his death, he senses this. And so he begins speaking to his son Solomon and giving him some commands. He would succeed his father as king of Israel. And he wanted Solomon to understand what it was like. And, and the core of the advice of what David spoke to Solomon was this. You need to know God, you need to obey his commands, and you need to fear him. You need to do that, Solomon. That's what David commanded his own son. David ends up passing away. Solomon takes the throne. And as he gets older and he progresses in his kingship, God continues to show favor and kindness to Solomon. And so Solomon is asked by God one day, what do you want? Anything you want, I'm gonna give it to you. It will be yours. And Solomon, remembering the advice of his father, know God, obey his commands, fear him all of your days. Knowing this and remembering this, Solomon answers the question in a way that we wouldn't. 
right? If, we're, if God comes up to us and says, hey, what do you want? I'll give you anything. We'd be like money, fame, power, job promotion, the girl, the guy, the house, all the things that I ever wanted. Solomon doesn't do that. Solomon takes a step back and he says, I want wisdom. And God says, I'm going to give you that wisdom. And wisdom will become a key thing as we, we begin to uh, unpack Ecclesiastes in the coming months. So God gives Solomon all of this wisdom and he gives Solomon everything else. Solomon begins to become the most wealthiest, the wisest, the most powerful, most influential, the greatest entrepreneur, the greatest businessman that Israel had ever seen. Solomon ends up becoming Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, Elon Musk, and Hugh Hefner all wrapped up into one. If we look at the life and the history of Solomon. None of that, we we consider Solomon, none of that's relatable to us, right? None of us in this room have 700 wives and 300 concubines. None of us in this room have billions of dollars. None of us are the wisest person walking the face of the earth right now. Solomon, in a lot of ways, is unrelatable to us. However, Solomon is deeply relatable to us in that he is human, just like you and I. He was a sinful and a fallen man, just like his father David, and just like you and I. Let me highlight some of the ways that Solomon was so flawed. Number one, Solomon got the worship of God wrong. Solomon began to offer sacrifices to pagan gods and pagan idols. He worshiped at the altar of false gods. And again, this should clue us in. We may not call them pagan gods, but you and I, you better believe every one of us worships at the altar of false idols. We sacrifice our lives at the altar of comfort, at the altar of ease at the altar of power, at the altar of control, at the altar of affirmation of people. You and I, we struggle with false worship of false gods, just like Solomon. Number two, Solomon made politics his religion. You see, God gave Solomon some really clear rules. Here is how you should live. Here's who you should marry. Here's who you should not marry. And Solomon, time and again, deliberately disobeyed God's commands for him. Sound like you and I? deliberately disobeyed. Solomon would go on to marry many women because of their strategic alliance. He would look out at women who were the daughters of the kings of foreign nations. And he would say, if I could marry this one, then this guy will not attack us. If I could get her, this guy will not invade Israel. I can protect Israel by literally getting into bed with a foreign nation deliberately disobeying God for strategic alliance. Though it was strategically beneficial, it was spiritually bankrupt. And when you and I make our business, we make our politics, we make our living strategies more preeminent in our lives than the worship of God, we're doing the same thing. Oftentimes we are making decisions because they are strategically beneficial to me, though they are spiritually bankrupt and we are deliberately disobeying God in the process. Number three, Solomon tried to find happiness and purpose from worldly matters. Again, we we think about, we could just list out all of these things that you and I go to, to try to gain happiness, influence, relationships, promotions, savings accounts, 
stock markets, cryptocurrency. Been a couple good weeks for that, huh? Told you guys. We go to a stress-free life. We go to gaining more followers, to getting more promotions, and we're cutthroat about it. And then here's what happens. We get to the top of our self-defined mountains, and we feel just as empty as we did at the bottom. Because we realize the goal line is always going to move. There is no such thing as arrival when it comes to worldly happiness. And then we go to our list of things that we think are going to satisfy us. And then we look at the life of Solomon and we see he had everything exponentially beyond what we did. And he too said it was empty. He too said it was vanity. He too said it was meaningless. Worldly matters will never satisfy the longings of the soul. It's important for us to understand that Solomon is simultaneously honored by God, but a deeply sinful man, because that's where we find the convergence of our lives. Saved by the grace of Jesus, saints in the eyes of the Father, yet still sinners, where we are deeply in need of the mercy and grace of God. We are just like Solomon. Number four, How is Ecclesiastes written? How is Ecclesiastes written? Now, what I mean by that is what kind of literature is Ecclesiastes? And this is important because you need to read your Bible literarily, not literally. Do you understand the difference there? When we read our Bibles, we must let the genre of Scripture govern our interpretation techniques. So let's just take it outside of the Bible. The way that you read Harry Potter, I know none of you read that, right? The way that you read Harry Potter is different than the way you read Shakespeare, which is different than the way you read your math textbook, right? You're not reading all three of those things the same way. You're letting the poetry of Shakespeare govern your hermeneutics, your interpretation. You're letting the narrative of Harry Potter govern the way that you read it. You're letting the the genre of your textbook govern the way that you read it. So when we're in the scriptures, sometimes there's poetry, sometimes there's narrative, sometimes there's letters, and the different genres teach us how to read it. Now, Ecclesiastes is what's called wisdom literature. Wisdom literature is Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Songs of Solomon. And the way in which we read wisdom literature is different than the way we read, say, Mark, which we looked at last year, which is narrative. When we're going to preach through Ecclesiastes, rather than it being kind of line by line and word by word, when you're reading wisdom literature, you pan out and you find the theme of what's being communicated and you look at it more thematically. So when we go through Ecclesiastes, like next week, we're going to do almost two whole chapters. And we're not going to, I'm not going to preach a four hour long sermon, though I know that's what you want. We're going to pull out and we're going to see what's the theme being communicated here. And then we're going to step into that theme together. Okay. You with me? We're good? We're still awake? We're happy? We've got coffee? Come on. Yeah. Number five, what is the purpose of Ecclesiastes? What is the purpose of Ecclesiastes? So in those first two verses, you heard the word vanity five times. 
Vanity, we'll look at it in a second. It's a deeply important word to understanding Ecclesiastes, but it essentially means it's like vapor. It's like a mist in the air. And when this book is written, it's written to expose to us the vanity of our futile ways of attempting to live. And this applies to both Christians and non-Christians. So for the Christians listening right now, the purpose of Ecclesiastes exposes empty religion. It exposes empty religion to us. When I'm talking about religion, here's what I mean. I mean working our way to God. I mean rule abiding. I mean basing your righteousness upon your own obedience. Religion, behavior cannot save you. You understand that? The scriptures say our behaviors, it's like a dirty woman's product. It's filthy in the sight of God. It's filthy rags. All of our attempts to work our way to God fall drastically short of his demands of holiness and his demands of obedience. We will always fall short. Our religion cannot save us, nor can religion sustain you. Here's what I mean by that. Life punches you in the face quite a bit, am I right? And when life punches you in the face, your religion cannot sustain you. Your obedience goes out the window when you get punched in the face. You act a fool when you get punched in the face. You stop following God when you get punched in the face. Your religion cannot save you and your religion cannot sustain you. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can do that. Only the grace of God giving us the righteousness and the holiness of Jesus can save us. Only the gospel can sustain us through the suffering, the ups and the downs, and the punches in the face that life give us. Ecclesiastes is gonna expose to us our empty religion. If you're not a Christian... Ecclesiastes is going to expose empty secularism, the emptiness of secularism. And here's what I mean by secularism. Any worldview that's not Christianity, any worldview that is not Christianity cannot bear the weight of life. Nihilism, materialism, atheism, Buddhism, humanism, whatever you want to call it, none of that can account for the suffering that life produces. When death comes, when pain comes, when hurt comes, you know what can't explain your life? Atheism. Only Christianity gives a full account for all of life. So Ecclesiastes is going to expose to us the emptiness of secularism. Uh, Listen to atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell speaking in some kind of Ecclesiastes-esque ways. Listen to this quote. We stand on the shore of an ocean, crying to the night and the emptiness. Sometimes a voice answers out of darkness, but it it is the voice of one drowning. And in a moment, the silence returns. The world seems to me quite dreadful. The unhappiness of most people is very great. And I often wonder how they endure it all. To know people well is to know their tragedy. It is usually the central thing about which, they live, about which their lives are built. And I suppose if they did not live most of the time in the things of the moment, they would not be able to go on. 
This is an atheist philosopher speaking in a way that Ecclesiastes speaks, that I spoke into the silence of the night, that there was dread and darkness and tragedy and terror, and I can't account for it. I hardly wonder why people go on at all. Only Christianity can keep us going on. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can explain how we keep moving. So much to unpack there, and we will for the next three months. Number six, what's the big idea of Ecclesiastes? What's the big point? So Ecclesiastes says, empty religion is vanity. It can't account for the rough and tumble of life. When when God throws you up on the wind and the waves of suffering, your rose-colored lens of faith are gonna be stripped from you. It's not all health, wealth, happiness, and unicorns in this faith. Your empty religion will not save you, will not sustain you. It's gonna leave you empty. That's one side of it. Okay, so if that doesn't work, religion doesn't work, I'm gonna throw myself headlong into secularism. Well, then Ecclesiastes will say, no, 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 that doesn't work either. Nothing can account for death on your doorstep, betrayal in your backyard, and disease knocking on your door. When those things come your way, your secular answers will not work. So surely there's some kind of third way, right? Religion doesn't work, secularism doesn't work. So there's a third way. Well, Solomon attempted to take the third way. The third way being a life of ease and insulation and comfort. If life is just gonna keep punching me, Solomon says, then I'm just gonna retreat to my kingdom where everything's easy, where everyone approves of me, where life never punches me in the face. We learn from Solomon, you can't avoid it. No matter how much money you have, no matter how many friends you have, no matter what your job title is, you cannot escape the realities of life. Which is why we all have our little habits that we try to escape with, whatever it is, eating, drinking, playing, hiding, sleeping. We all try to hide and insulate ourselves. We try to take this third way that Solomon takes and it doesn't work. Solomon himself suffered, and we'll look at it through Ecclesiastes. So the big idea is, the key that unlocks life under the sun is a meaningful connection to the living Lord beyond the sun. It's the only way to account for life underneath the sun. The only way to make sense of what's going on in this world is to look beyond the sun and see the living Lord who rules and reigns as the sovereign one over all things. And when life is meaningless, when life is vain, when life is empty, when all our futile attempts fail, the Lord is constant and the Lord does not fail. The key to a meaningful life right here and now is a connection to the living Lord beyond the sun. And by the way, Scott Workman designed the graphic here. Put that up on the screen. It is fantastic. Uh, If I wore tattoos, I'd probably put it on myself. That is so good. And those are the Rancho Mountains. That's the sun peeking over it. And, And look at that. It's the Lord beyond the sun. The rays go outward because we are looking to the Lord beyond the sun to give us meaning here underneath the sun. And that's what Ecclesiastes is gonna teach us. Great job, Scott. All right, we good? Let's keep moving here now. And what I wanna do with the rest of our time 
ish. We'll see what happens here is look at verses three through 11. So let's jump back into the text. Let's reorient ourselves to where we are. Look at verse three with me. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Let's keep reading. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. All right. Now, let's look at the text. The first thing I wanna draw out, again, is that word vanity. We see it on repeat in these 11 verses. There's a few different meanings behind the word vanity. So let's look at the different angles. And by the way, it'll be used about 34 times in the book of Ecclesiastes, really important to us. The first meaning to the word is like breath or vapor. So let's say it ever got cold here and we were to go outside and breathe into the air. That would, that would show us what vanity looks like in Ecclesiastes because it'd be like a vapor, like a, like a breath in the air that's there one second and gone in the next. Ecclesiastes is saying life is like that. It's like your breath in the cold of night. It's there one second and it's gone the next. The second meaning to the word vanity is the word meaningless, that life is meaningless. Now, again, we're gonna see this 34 times and Solomon's just gonna keep saying, everything is meaningless, everything's meaningless. Is he being serious? He's being deadly serious. If we were to go to Solomon or go to the preacher and say, is marriage meaningless? Meaningless. Is life meaningless? Meaningless. Is money meaningless? Meaningless. Is vocation meaningless? Meaningless. He would keep on saying that. Now, is, is the preacher right? That's a different question for us to ask than whether or not he means it. He absolutely means that all of life is meaningless. Again, it's like a breath in the night. So he keeps saying that life is pointless and it's like a breath and it's like a mist and it's like a vapor in the night. And then in these 11 verses, he gives us a bunch of different categories of what is vanity, of what is meaningless. He begins with toil, your work, your vocation, the work of your hands. He is saying it is like vapor. It's meaningless. It's like a mist, your, your breath in the night, that your work is not that important. He is saying it's meaningless. Now, if you want proof of this, well, we can go back in history and look at the people and the techniques that built America and built other foreign countries. Let's talk about America for a second. We're talking Vanderbilt. We're talking Carnegie. We're talking Rockefeller. Who are they? Their techniques are outdated. What they did is pointless. We've already forgotten it. Sure, they've got generational wealth, but Solomon says, guess what? Wealth is meaningless. It doesn't really matter. These people are already largely forgotten. Your work is not gonna be remembered. 
He says generation goes and a generation comes in verse four. He's talking about your own family history and generations that have come and gone before you. All right, so question, and some of you might be really smart, so this might backfire. Who was the 14th president of the United States of America? Gotcha. You know number one, you know 17, and you know 45. You don't know 14. Why? You aren't gonna be remembered. Generations are forgotten. I don't know any of my grandparent, great-grandparents' names. I know one, Elida, which is a really old name, but the other seven, I don't know. Who are they? I don't know them. You don't know yours. Your great-grandkids won't know you. Your generations are like a vapor. Gotcha. He talks about the natural world. The the sun rises, the sun goes down, the wind blows on its circuits, the streams flow into the sea and then they come right back into the stream and on the circuit it goes. He is saying this natural world, it even is vanity. The different weather patterns are vanity. They don't matter that much. And then he keeps going and he talks about the ear hearing and, and the eye seeing and the mouth tasting, your own senses of what you can see and taste and touch and feel and sense in this world. It's all vanity. Think about the last steak you ate. My my own home group, uh, we're lucky that we have access to a rancher. um, And we got to, about three or four weeks ago, eat some Wagyu ribeyes for our home group, which I've never done before. And it was fantastic. I mean, I was worshiping in the moment and then I went home. I'm not even kidding you. I had a vivid dream that night about Wagyu ribeye. It was un... Do you guys think I'm joking? I, I had a dream about steak. It was so good. But then guess what? The punchline is this. My body expelled it and I've already forgotten how it tasted. Vanity. It's vanity. Everything we can see and touch and taste. Ultimately, what these verses are communicating to us is that life is meaningless. Have any of you seen the movie Groundhog Day with with Bill Murray? That's Ecclesiastes. You wake up and every day is the same. You're like a hamster on a wheel, spinning your legs for nothing is what these verses are communicating. And then he says this, there's nothing new under the sun. Let's talk for a second. If teenagers in the room or, or if you have teenagers, there's a couple of style things right now that I'm really disappointed by. Number one, I'll go after the ladies first. Ladies, baggy pants don't look good. Number two, it's not a new style. That's been done before. We think we're so creative with our, you know, fashion and style and all these, you know, people designing these pants that MC Hammer used to wear. I mean, come on. All right, guys, mullets look worse. I don't know why mullets are back, baby, but they are. I could get a skullet. I can't get the top, but listen to me. It doesn't work. There's nothing new under the sun. And we look out, we're like, well, you know, Zuckerberg and the Metaverse, that's, that ain't new. Nothing's new. Nothing is new under the sun. None of us are that special or that creative. There's nothing new. Everything that you sense and you take part in has been done before in history. And of later things to come, there will be nothing new. They'll look back and say, it's already been done. It's living this life 
where we're chasing the wind. It's a wild goose chase without the goose. So then we see this other phrase that's really important, under the sun. We're gonna see that phrase 20-something times in the book of Ecclesiastes, and this is really important. This phrase, under the sun, means living a life without reference to God, living a purely horizontal life, living a life devoid of verticality, living a life from an atheistic standpoint. This is what it means to be under the sun. It is to say, what is there to gain from living and doing life apart from God? And the answer is, there's no meaning. Everything under the sun apart from God, without reference to God, is absolutely meaningless. Jesus will ask a similar question in Matthew chapter 16 when he says this, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? We could gain everything with a godless existence but forfeit the only thing that matters, our life and our soul and a relationship to the living Lord of the universe. What will it profit us to live without God? And the answer from Ecclesiastes is nothing. A godless life is full of empty religion, empty secularism that cannot save us, which is why we must look beyond the sun to find meaning and purpose and hope in this world. L listen to Matt Chandler describing life beyond the sun. So this circular silliness that we find ourselves caught up in, it needs someone from beyond the sun to come break it. So the scriptures tell us that Christ comes and John 10, 10 said to give us life to the full. You wanna hear a really good translation of what's going on in John 10, 10? I came that you may ha have life and have it abundantly. He basi he's basically saying this, you're living and you're breathing, but you're not alive. You're just existing. In me, there's life. You're existing, but you're not living. I have come so that you might have life, what you were created for now, all of a sudden, these things do have meaning. Now, all of a sudden, when this happens, money can just be money. Like money is no longer our master. We don't have to have, have it to have some kind of social status. It just becomes money. So we can give it away or we can buy a house, but money doesn't own us. Christ removes the futility and the vanity from the soul and brings about the purpose that you and I are dying for. Everything else under the sun is running on a treadmill. My hope is that you'll start to honestly evaluate life and that that might lead you to look beyond the sun and that we might develop even more fully the sixth sense of faith. Chandler is making the case here that the big idea of Ecclesiastes is faith, that faith in Jesus Christ unlocks meaning under the sun. And we're saying the same thing. A connection to the living Lord of the universe unlocks everything here on earth. The key that unlocks life under the sun is a meaningful connection to the living Lord beyond the sun. So here's what happens. We go into the New Testament and there's this inbreaking of the gospel of Jesus Christ and a greater Solomon is born. He is a greater and a wiser king than Solomon. His name is King Jesus. He is richer and more influential and more benevolent than Solomon could ever hope to be. His name is Jesus. He is the son of God and his work is not done in vain. Everything that he touches has meaning and it transforms 
everything. And he accomplishes our salvation. He unites himself to us. He dwells in us by his spirit and he gives us meaning and purpose and hope in everything that we do. Which is why 1 Corinthians 15, 58 can say this, that all your work done for the Lord is not in vain. (laughs) Because Jesus is the key that unlocks meaning and purpose. The very thing that you and I are dying for is the only thing we can have through Jesus Christ. You will not get it in religion. You will not get it in secularism. You will not get it in insulating yourself. You will not get it in your work. You will not get it in your relationships. You will not get it through your kids. Stop trying that. You won't get it through your recreation. You won't get it through accomplishing all of your goals. The only way you're gonna get meaning is by being connected to the living Lord of the universe. It is only through the gospel we have meaning. It is only through the gospel we have salvation. It is only through the gospel that we can explain life and how life works. When you're suffering, what does Christ tell you? I suffered for you and I'll suffer with you. And you suffer not as a people without hope. When you're facing affliction, what does the gospel tell you? The gospel tells you I'm gonna comfort you in that affliction. I'm gonna be with you through that affliction. When sin is habitually tripping you up, what does the gospel tell you? I can free you from that. I can set you free. You can walk in holiness and in power. When relationships are broken and full of strife and without hope, what does the gospel tell you? Jesus is the reconciler. It's not a hopeless relationship. There's always hope for reconciliation. When we go to our workplace, what does the gospel tell us? You're not living for you. You're living and doing all things for the glory of God. When we're making money, what does the gospel tell us? You didn't earn it. You're not an owner of it. You're a steward of it. And it's meant to be used to bless others and glorify God. When we're looking at our relationships, what does the gospel tell us? You are meant to be a vessel of mercy and grace to every person you come into contact with. In the same way that Christ refreshes our souls, we are meant to refresh the souls of others. This is what the gospel teaches us. Living purely a horizontal life is meaningless, but living a life with verticality gives great and deep meaning because Christ saves us, Christ sustains us, and Christ gives us a mission and purpose in this world, and it's full of meaning and hope for you and for me. It is not like a vapor. Listen to Chris Lewis as he preaches about this. Solomon doesn't have the final word. Jesus does. We need someone greater than Solomon, and that one is Jesus. In Matthew 12, 42, he says, now one who is greater than Solomon is here. See, Solomon knew the problem, but didn't have the solution. He saw the disease of sin, but didn't have the cure. He saw that people were crooked and bent and broken, but he couldn't straighten them out, but Jesus did. And he came as the answer to every frustration that Solomon experienced. He was greater than Solomon because he was God. And he came not just to inform us, but to transform our lives. Not just to share in our grief, but to conquer our sin. So he died in our place for our sin. He became sin for us so that we might have the very righteousness of God. So that anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. And one day we will hear him say, behold, I am making all things new. 
Solomon only had half the story. He only had the bad news. Jesus, though, is the good news. When our lives are filled with Jesus, we get our meaning back. This is the key. The question is, are you living a horizontal or a vertical life? Are you living a life that is underneath the sun, devoid of God, hopeless, meaningless, like a vapor? Or are you living a life beyond the sun, connected to the living, sovereign, merciful, good, saving, gracious, benevolent, powerful King Jesus? Is this the one you're looking to? Is he ruling and reigning over your life? If you're not a Christian, let me just invite you. Today's the day. Turn from your sin. Trying to save yourself is futile and it's vanity. Look to Jesus. Confess he is Lord and Savior and he will wipe you clean of your filth and clothe you in his righteousness and you will forever have meaning and purpose and love and forgiveness from him. If you are a Christian, the question is, are you a functional atheist? Confessing with your mouth that there's meaning beyond the sun, but living day to day in the horizontal realities of life. That's the natural disposition of you and I. We naturally drift not into godliness and faith. We naturally drift into godlessness and faithlessness. And day to day, we confess, Jesus, you are Lord. Jesus, you are Savior. But then we go out and live life as if it's meaningless, as if we're in control, as if we're sovereign, as if we can account for our suffering and our pain and our hardship and our victories. That's that's my cue. Like the Academy Awards, right? Too long, bro. Nah, we're gonna go now. Are we functional atheists? Let me confess, all too often I am. All too often, what I try to do is do what Solomon does. Try to insulate myself. Let me get my friends, let me get my family, and then we're gonna go take this Benedict option where we just go hide away from everyone. And all I hear is a good word from those around me. I don't have to face the pain. I don't have to account for the suffering. I don't have to make, you know, I don't have to make a, a reason for my own sinfulness. I'm just gonna insulate myself. That's not the way Ecclesiastes tells us to live. The way Ecclesiastes says to live is with total trust, total faith, and total connection to the living Lord beyond the sun. So what does that do? It frees us up to live boldly. It frees us up to live courageously. It frees us up to live a life of confession and repentance and forgiveness where we're not judged, not not by the Lord or each other, where the Lord looks at us and he said, you confessed, you're forgiven. You're clothed in my righteousness. You're cleansed by my blood. Don't make an excuse for your sin. I already saved you from your sin. Now you have the power of the spirit to free you from the power of that sin. Go and live a holy life. Not because you're able to by your religion, but because my grace saved you and my grace empowered you. And then Ecclesiastes says, when you're living a vertical life, it's not just about finding forgiveness and freedom from your sin. It's about living courageously for God, where we do go into our workplace, where we look at our generations, where we look at our wealth, where we look at the natural world around us, and it has meaning and purpose, and not a single second of our day or this world is wasted. Nothing. 
Not a single meal you eat is wasted. Not a single person you email is wasted. Not a single conversation you have is wasted. Everything has meaning. And over the next three months, church, I want us to step into a life where we account for the verticality, where we are not functional atheists, where the confession of our mouths and the steps of our lives match up, increasingly so, so that we can live powerful, meaningful, hopeful lives before God and before others. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you that you do give us meaning. That Christ, your work is not done in vain. And that when you save us, our work is not done in vain. That a life under the sun, a godless existence, truly is vanity and striving after the wind. But a life connected to you has deep meaning and deep purpose and deep hope. I pray, God, you would shed us from the attachments to the things of this world that lure us in and promise a bill of goods that it can't deliver on. That we would stop trying to trust in ourselves. We would stop trying to trust in others. We would stop trying to trust in politics, money, relationships, other people, whatever it might be. And we would look to you and trust in you alone, God. I pray you would make us a church that increasingly over the days to come are marked by faith pure, undefiled, powerful faith that invades every moment and gives meaning and purpose and hope. And so God, over the next three months, as we look at Ecclesiastes, I pray uh, you would lift our eyes to see you, that we would see you uh, as the king of glory, the sovereign one over the universe. We would worship you, we would exalt you, and then we would be compelled to live for you in every moment of every day. We love you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.